Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. In today's episode, TPV editor Beatrice de Graaf interviews Professor Dr. Gees van den Bos from Utrecht University on the topic of conspiracy theories in radicalization. They discuss his most recent monograph, Why People Radicalize, published by Oxford University Press in 2018, and the highly relevant contributions to conspiracy by Karen Douglas from the University of Kent. They talk about conspiracy in the Netherlands and globally, and explore what could be done, or perhaps what should be done, from a social science and interdisciplinary lens. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Terrorism Political Violence podcast, where today we are recording the final episode of this academic year. It's a pleasure to have Professor Dr. Kees van den Bos uh, on the podcast to discuss the topic of conspiracy theories and radicalization in terrorism. Kees is a professor here at Utrecht University and I have to admit also a friend and colleague of mine. So I'm particularly happy that he's here today. And his research includes the issue of fair processes in government citizen interaction, the role of group deprivations and breaches of morality in terrorism and radical behavior, and the psychological processes that lead people to trust government and important societal institutions. Kees, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, Beatrice. It's a real pleasure to be here. So, just for starters, to introduce yourself and your work to the listeners, how and when and why did you start your career in this field? Um, I'm a social psychologist by uh, training, so someone who studies what people feel, think and do in society. And it was during a summer vacation in New York City, then uh, uh, in the daytime I visited museums and uh, the Central Park and all the typical New York and kind of things. And in the evening I was sitting in my hotel room contemplating, okay, what's next in my career? And I thought, okay, well, sociology as a discipline should become more relevant. And what is the most relevant, societally relevant thing that I possibly could study? And then, then it hit to me, well, per- perhaps the sociology of radicalization would make some sense. And uh, I also, uh, that also made some sense, not only because I, it, it enabled me to um, uh, combine different uh, research projects and, and lines of research that I did in my research program, but also because I uh, hooked up uh, part-time with a new position, uh, holding a chair at a law school, focusing on empirical legal research there. And radicalization is such an interesting thing because it's not only involving people's radical thoughts, their uh, associated strong feelings and their radical behaviors, but especially turning points that people start to develop a certain disdain for the rule of law and that they uh, start to sympathize with um, uh, extremist violent behaviors to achieve their goals. So that uh, all made sense uh, somehow. Yes, perhaps I should um, 
highlighted case is not just social psychologist, professor of social psychology, including the social psychology of organizations in Utrecht, but he's also a professor of empirical legal science. So it's a f- quite unique combination. You're a legal professor in law and a social psychological uh, professor, and you've published more than 250 publications, but also quite some publications where you combine these two domains. Isn't that a terrible stretch? Uh, it, it can be a stretch, but uh, uh, also uh, the field of law and the field of sociology also share some uh, similarities. For example, in my work in sociology, I focus on the interface between uh, people's fairness and justice judgments and how that pertains to uh, conflicts, uh, conflicts between people, between different groups and conflicts within and between societies. Um, And that issue of how people perceive what is fair and what is just, what is unfair, unjust, and how how that can increase conflict or fair treatment can resolve conflicts uh, sometimes, that's that's uh, relevant to what is happening in the courtroom, for example. So there are some important similarities. And also, uh, working in the field of law is really nice because it focuses you to, to... uh, to really zoom in onto, into the, onto the basis of your discipline, social psychology. So sometimes in the psychology lab, not only with social psychology, but also other different fields of psychology, we overdo the micro-processes that we study in the lab. And when you go out in the real world, such as a courtroom, there's lots, there are lots more noise, lots more variance, and lots more errors and degrees of freedom. So that uh, forces you to zoom into the basics of what you know. And so that, that really is uh, more comforting, uh, let's say, intellectually. That's a nice thought. And that also has prompted you to, to write your, one of your most recent monographs, Why People Radicalized, came out in Dutch, but came also out in English with Oxford University Press. And um, what is the most impact um, effect that this book needs to have on the field of research, you think? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it uh, should uh, attain at least two goals, I think. Well, first, uh, the quest of, of me and several of my colleagues to, to make the field of sociology more relevant in society. And also that it really matters in what uh, policy decision makers or a mayor of a, a certain city or um, um, a, a police officer walking down the streets, that we give these people some insights, okay, what is going on? Why might people be tempted to uh, start radicalizing? And what can we do uh, about that, especially uh, in terms of prevention? There are already so many books, so many articles on radicalization. It's a whole forest, a jungle of studies out there. So what makes your framework, because the book is not just a series of case studies, it's it's a proper framework in which you introduce a new perspective on how to understand radicalization um, as something that has to do with perceptions of unfairness. So why did you think that's necessary? What's the added value of your framework? Uh, yeah, what we see in uh, in different uh, different uh, types of uh, radicalization processes, that quite often it starts out with uh, people feeling 
well, this is not right. Something there is fishy here. It's really unfair. It's blatantly unjust what, what is going on, how I am being treated, how my group is being treated, or how certain moral principles are treated uh, here in this uh, country or in this community. And that really sparks a fire um, among people. So it's really not only what people perceive, but they also feel it. It's a, a process of what we call hot cognition, a combination of feelings and perceptions. And that can drive people uh, to start working on that in a good manner, but also when uh, there's repeated frustration and people do not reach their goals of changing what is going on in society, they may might be tempted to start engage um, in violent means to obtain their uh, goals. And, and that's something that we uh, see in many different groups and many different types of uh, instances of radicalization. Importantly, unfairness judgments are so important not in isolation. There are also other moderating or mediating variables, such as that people feel uncertain about themselves or they feel their group is being threatened in society or they're not really able to control their own emotions in a satisfactory kind of way. And those kinds of variables combined may lead people to start to engage in violent extremist behaviors, especially when the opportunity are there. So it's also because of this somewhat vague feeling, well, this is really not fair, this is wrong somehow, that people then are uh, susceptible to uh, coming into interaction with someone or a, a certain group who tells them, who informs them, well, I recognize what you are feeling and let me tell you, this is unfair. And this is precisely something we uh, could do about it namely something we should do about it. So it's, it starts to become a moral uh, obligation almost. So and I think that's, that's really a powerful framework to, uh, to understand different uh, types of radicalization processes in our world currently and also in the future. And asking this as an historian, where historians always pay attention to the nitty-gritty details, the things that make a case unique. Uh, the, so for a historian, it's quite somehow strange to discuss radicalization patterns in such a generalizing fashion. Because every case and every context is unique. Every ideology, every religion has its own pathway to radicalization. So how how does that sound to you? I mean, does your framework for radicalization as a perception of unfairness applies to all ideologies and religions? Are there distinctions within the waves of terrorism, as David Rapport has it? Uh, yeah, what we think uh, in the field of sociology is that in, we indeed like to uh, build, let's say, somewhat abstract frameworks that, that uh, so we, uh, we hope, uh, we aspire that these have an overarching kind of relevance to certain, uh, to various types of radicalization processes in this case. Um, but then importantly, uh, it's, uh, uh, these, this framework needs to be contextualized to fit with each and every uh, uh, 
past, current, or future uh, specific instance of radicalization. So that's a very important uh, thing. And that's also part of the, the real contribution of sociology when done uh, properly, that is not only about broad general psychological frameworks, now you adapt it to the specific social circumstance in which people are finding themselves and which different types of radicalization processes uh, work out. And is your framework a framework that's situated most at the micro level, the individual, the meso level, the group level, where perceptions of injustice are shared and translated into sound bites and frames, uh, even magazines uh, like IS did with, with uh, Inspire or um, Dabik? Um, or is it more a macro-like level if there are big trends and, and patterns of in felt injustices in society so how do you where, where do you situate your yeah. framework yeah that's a very good uh, question so uh, basically my framework starts with the individual perceiving uh, something in in society and in his her their uh, environment so it's really the individual perceiving what's going on in society so it has a somewhat micro kind of orientation but but with a specific link to uh, meso and micro uh, kind of approaches uh, for example the issue of symbolic interactionism is also playing an important role in my uh, explanation uh, so the idea is that something happens and that is this unfair uh, instance is such a symbol of what is going on and what is really wrong in society. So therefore you start to come into uh, action. So it's not only the individual, uh, it, but that's um, it's certainly the interaction with, with the large part of society, but the individual is the orientation, the, the starting point, let's say. And, and another question, um, if the individual is the starting point, the individual is still being triggered into this process of radicalization that to, by something that happen, is happening outside of him or her, a situation of unfairness, which is oftentimes created by state actors, by the authorities. They do something that they, the radicalizing persons, abhor and that they protest against. So Alex Schmidt in... Uh, uh, writing about radicalization says radicalization as a process always has these two sides. It's the radicalizing group or individual, but it's also the state actors, the authorities that they protest against uh, or that they want to legitimize, um, delegitimize, that offer them frames of injustice, perceived or real ones. So the state does something and has an effect, a bearing on these processes of radicalization. So do you factor in this double-sided uh, character of radicalization so from the perspective of the individual but also outside of this individual something is happening uh, yeah that, those are excellent observations and uh, let me give two types of reactions so first I think we are living in uh, as scientists we are living in, in exciting times namely that we realize that monodisciplinary accounts do not uh, well, do not work anymore uh, as they used to, perhaps. So we need interdisciplinary uh, science in which we team up to really uh, focusing from coming from different kinds of orientations and 
perspectives and scientific disciplines to work on understanding and, 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 and trying to counter uh, radicalization in our society. So that's one reaction, and I embrace that. I like that. I'm a sociologist, and I firmly um, have, uh, uh, adopt to that perspective, focusing on fairness judgments in particular, but I also like to think uh, to do other things and include other accounts in which other people specialize. So that's one thing. Uh, the, the other thing is that I do think uh, that uh, um, sometimes uh, people uh, in the humanities, for example, make the mistakes of going too fast to uh, concepts like frames. So yes, they certainly matter, but uh, when we, for instance, talk about fairness and justice, we should adopt uh, a perspective by David Hume and not Immanuel Kant. With, what do I mean with that? Yes. Um, when we focus on justice and fairness, morality, we often uh, implicitly or explicitly explicitly think about Immanuel Kant and think, okay, well, we need to sit down and think very carefully what is going wrong, and then we uh, uh, somehow come up with a moral imperative or other explicit rationalistic kind of uh, ideas about morality. That's not how it works with most people. With some people it does, but with most people it's more like Hume, that you start out with a, uh, a gut feeling, hm, this is fishy, this is wrong, there are, wh what is going on here? And then you start searching for information, and perhaps also so not very actively, but somewhat you're waiting for it, somewhat passively, and then someone tells you, Hey, but this is wrong, and and that that is really happenstance. Which kind of part you then come in uh, into contact with? And of course, in your own environment, those those are the the frames that you are then likely to uh, perceive and come into contact uh, with. But it's um, uh, we should not overdo the issue of frames in a first phase of radicalization, which my work really focuses on. Uh, once these injustice frames are there, then Alex Schmidt and others are really completely right, then they work uh, in a very active, directive kind of uh, manner. But quite often, it's uh, a young um, uh, kid uh, perceiving something is wrong. Uh, it's really uh, by chance whether, uh, that he or she or Dirk is getting explained what is wrong, exactly. So are you trying to tell me that it's not just an epistemic question is there or isn't there unfairness uh, out there in the world so it's more existential how does someone feels what does it say about his identity or may it also be socially driven so what do the friends the peer group think and say about unfairness and that prom may prompt a vulnerable susceptible young, young person to engage in radicalization so it's not so much logical rational epistemic and it's more emotional, um, existential, social driven? Uh, yeah, there are several uh, processes important uh, here. So it's it's not only uh, cognitive processes, so people perceiving uh, and processing information. Uh, it's also feelings that are uh, very uh, important here in a social context indeed, so that your peers tell you, okay, well, this is going on, uh, on and this is, why do you uh, uh, accept that? That's not really not acceptable. So those social and group aspects are very important. 
especially for younger uh, people. And a lot of radicalization takes place uh, uh, with people between 16 and four, uh, 24 years of age. And then processes of uh, identifying with groups and other social categories are very important. So, so what the state does, for example, um, things like arrests or news about extrajudicial renditions, torture, uh, things, so things that state authorities do that may prompt people to radicalize in your framework they are less important than those state of minds that are already there in place by individuals uh well we sh um, that's not uh, necessarily what i'm saying I i'm saying that in in a uh, early phase of radicalization then these more vague kind of processes mm -hmm. of cognition, of uh, feelings are more important than we sometimes realize. And we as scientists, for example, we implicitly, let's say, um, uh, hold the idea what we do in our weekends, namely uh, to buy the New York Times or another elaborate newspaper and start to process all the information that is there. Most people don't do that. And they process information in, in a much different uh, way. So I'm not saying that what is uh, occurring in, uh, in print on the internet or uh, in, in other um, writings about uh, of, of various radical movements is not important. No, it's certainly very important. But in other phases, other uh, processes are uh, also uh, important. And therefore, it's so important that different kinds of disciplines work um, interactively uh, together. I like that approach a lot, coming from the humanities, studying terrorism, radicalization. It's impossible to do so without the help uh, of social psychologists, legal people, um, data specialists, uh, what have you. So I really like your approach. And it's also building a bridge to a text that you brought with you today on conspiracy thinking. Because with conspiracy, it's also sometimes more obfuscated, sometimes more vague and confused, and that there is a linear a, a, a strict um, script out there that people follow. So could you perhaps introduce the text uh, that you brought to the table today and why you think that text and that theme is so important? Yeah, I uh, brought uh, to this uh, conversation a recent article by Karen Douglas from the University of Kent. Um, and she uh, is a very interesting uh, sociologist uh, studying conspiracy theorists. And, uh, and what uh, is so fascinating about her work is that she, uh, she does many things, but in, in this paper that I brought uh, to this uh, table here, uh, she distinguished between three important motivations that drive people to start believing in what we sometimes call you know, conspiracy thoughts. The first one is that uh, people start to search for information. What is going on here in this world? What, what is happening uh, here? How do I make sense of it? So that is an epistemological uh, motive. And that's something very important and that we study quite often when focusing on conspiracy. Would you say it's a rational motive? Uh, no, it, it, it's more about uh, cognitive processes. Yeah? So that also includes some biases that people have. Uh, think of the work by Danny Kahneman and others, for, for example. That's also focusing on cognitive uh, kind of uh, processes. But it certainly has a, a rational or well-thought-through component, partly. The other motive that's quite often... Uh, related to the first motive is that why are people so, so frantically searching for this information? 
uh, is because they, uh, it is related to their fears. They're really fearful what is going on. It's the state overturning uh, some important things or, or a secret elite is driving this uh, uh, society. So people are really uh, uh, have existential concerns. So that's an existential motive. Okay, what is going on? Is my, uh, my really my whole existence here at stake? So these are very two very important motives. However, importantly, Karen Douglas also distinguishes a third motive that's uh, important uh, when uh, why people start to sympathize with conspiracy kind of movements. And that's the process of identification. So, for example, identification plays a role in our, each of our, our lives. Eh? We identify with the organization where we work, with our family, with our friends, etc., uh, etc. Et and especially when we are younger, we do that, but also when we are older, it's very important for us. So, social identification is a very normal process. But conspiracy thinking is so attractive because it not only suits your existential and epistemological concerns, it also, when, when you are there at a secret kind of society, a group who understands what's going on in society, for example, about this secret elite that is really driving what's going on here, then you feel uh, part of an elitish kind of uh, group, which is really nice. It feel, uh, you can really affiliate uh, with it, and there are a lot of people who are much dumber uh, than, uh, than you. So that's also... Uh, nice. So social identification is also very important. And for instance, I think uh, that could be an issue that you could sometimes could use perhaps. So for example, when you have a close friend or uh, your brother, sister or an aunt uh, starts to uh, uh, sympathize with conspiracy kind of movements, what can you do? Well, it is, can be very hard to, uh, to fight the epistemological or the existential concerns because they really believe in it, not only cognitively, but also emotionally. They're very strongly uh, attached to it. But what you can communicate, well, let's agree that we disagree about this issue, about how you uh, look at COVID treatments or uh, other issues in the world. But I'm here for you as your close friends as your brother, uh, as your uh, um, uh, family member, or what have you uh, not. So that you signal, well, uh, you still can identify with me, and I will identify with you. So and that, in uh, that manner, perhaps, in some cases, you don't lose that uh, person. And in the long run, after a certain crisis, such as the COVID crisis, has uh, slowed down a bit, perhaps there's a way to, uh, um, to start bonding more closely again. Thank you for, for that very thoughtful explication. Before we delve deeper into the conspiracy theories, let me introduce an example, a case study on the table, uh, to which you yourself uh, commented in the Dutch press. As we speak, uh, these weeks, uh, the Netherlands are uh, captivated by a so-called nitrogen crisis. It um, has to do with the country's nitrogen policy, where the Dutch government has announced that it will strictly implement policies to limit the Netherlands' carbon footprint and nitrogen emissions. And the group of people that are held mostly responsible for that now 
So one industry in particular, it's the dairy industry. It's farmers with uh, huge livestock stables uh, who need to reduce their farming. Well, uh, this has been an issue over the past years, but it's boiling down now to the deadline of these, these, these measures. And the farmers have started to throw out their machines, their uh, <laughs> agrarian um, uh, the, the trackers and their, their other machines, and they're driving into the towns, they're driving over the highways into the government capital. And you yourself made some comments on their process of radicalization and you formulate, you defined it as being triggered by, how can we be surprised, perceptions of unfairness. Uh, in as much as I do agree with you, I also thought, well, they're just driven by anger that they're going to lose their material wealth. They need to reduce the livestock. They're going to lose out on their interests. How is that injustice? It's just, it's material. It's material interest that they're defending. Could you say something about this farmer crisis and also how your concept of unjust unfairness works and also about conspiracy theories because these farmers are now also launching and uh, supporting all kinds of conspiracy theories. Um, well, um, what, what I think that uh, in the case of these uh, uh, farmers, uh, they indeed are uh, fired up about what, I th what they think is really an unfair treatment done to, uh, to them. Uh, so on the basis of, uh, let's say, general reports on the nitrogen uh, crisis, then the government decides, okay, uh, your um, farm is close by a certain um, a piece of nature. We want to protect that, uh, that land, and therefore you have to cut down in a severe uh, kind of manner. So they feel as an individual farmer or as a group of farmers being treated in an unfair, blatantly unjust uh, manner. Also compared to other uh, types of um, uh, uh, labor, uh, such as industries or uh, uh, Schiphol Airport, who are also bringing a lot of uh, problems to the nitrogen uh, table, as it were. Uh, and therefore, they're also blocking those kinds of uh, uh, industries. Uh, they are also ventilating their anger, which is injustice related, of course, uh, with... Uh, 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 and well, with, with so for some reason, to for example, uh, um, grocery stores, uh, which which are part of, uh, which are uh, let's say, uh, agencies that uh, that buy their uh, foods uh, and other products at a, a very cheap uh, price. So it's quite reasonable, psychologically speaking, that they ventilate their anger in this uh, uh, kind of uh, manner. But, but isn't your theory then giving them the moral upper hand? How does that help us solving this crisis? Because you know, as, as well as I do, as well as the farmers do, that these measures have been announced and the Netherlands are obliged to cut down these measures. So something has to happen. So how, with your theory in hand, how can you open up space for discussion again? Is, is that possible? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a very important question. It's also a very difficult question to answer, of course. Uh, that said, I, I think it's very important not to treat, in this case, the group of farmers or another radicalizing group 
uh, as if they were one and the same. It's always important to see different nu see nuances and different kinds of subgroups. So, for example, the radicalizing uh, farmers that go out there with their um, uh, big equipment and block their roads and, uh, and other uh, things, those are uh, really, in terms of numbers, they are a minority of uh, the, the whole group of uh, farmers. So there are many different kinds of uh, farmers who some of them already adopted to another kind of farming uh, style and others are, work, are quite um, uh, willing to work cooperatively with the government. But then, as our whole parliament also said, then we need to give them a really a realistic pathway. So we really give them, we need to give them high quality, very accessible information. Okay, what can you do and how can we help you to come out with this and, and, and start out in a new manner or uh, cut down in a reasonable kind of uh, manner. So that, that would be uh, some of the implications that follow from our work. I hasten to say that as a psychologist, uh, we, we tend to describe what is going on, not in a normatively kind of manner, but in, we describe descriptively what, what we see happening. And on the basis of this analysis, politicians and other uh, perhaps normative scientists can, can use these insights. Eh? So uh, don't blame the messenger. No, but, but, but the message sounds on paper so straightforward and so neat that you can almost think, well, give Case his and his framework room onto the highway, let him argue with the farmers, and they will all see, see reason. But you know, as well as I do, that if you bring Karen Douglas in with her work on conspiracy, that lots of these discussions are being tainted, are being confused, upended by conspiracy theories. What makes it so difficult to have a proper discussion on unfairness because what we see happening is with a little group and minority within this group of farmers uh, and the same could have been said about the corona crisis a minority group within such a crisis within such a social movement that protests the, the measures will adopt conspiracy theories to make sense of what's happening. For example, they say, now the farmers, well, it's not just a nitrogen crisis. The government just wants to take back the land and wants to invite immigrants to live here. So they're kind of combining, what we see happening now, combining great replacement theories with nitrogen crisis-related protests, which, which makes for a very combustible kind of conspiracy theory and if you then look what Karen Douglas says she says well people those conspiracy theories do not give people back a sense of control on the contrary they, they suppress they oppress the notion of autonomy and control they almost make the problem unbearable so big that that, that nothing can save you anymore so how do you relate to the issue of conspiracy theories within such a protest group, social movement group. Yeah, um, th th those are very uh, interesting issues. Um, let me uh, 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 leave the farmers for what they are and zoom in onto another example that I think is more clear. The, um, the Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump kind of election. Um, 
what I think, uh, so what you what you see, for instance, is now that uh, Donald Trump uh, lost the, the last elections. Uh, there you see a lot of conspiracy uh, thinking, so that the elite are really driving what is going on in this uh, country. They're coming together in restaurants in Washington, D.C., and there they drink the blood of children, and all these kind of really conspiracy thoughts. And I think those are, uh, we should really be careful of labeling something as a conspiracy uh, thought. So some of the uh, uh, some some um, uh, explainers of what is going on, for example, sample writing newspapers are way too quick to to denote something in conspiracy uh, theory. So, so when would you do that then? Um, well, when when there is obviously uh, uh, no objective uh, reason why uh, or uh, uh, no objective case to be made for a certain kind of uh, uh, process and that's also way g- going way overboard uh, so, so saying okay well there are uh, really secret agents uh, organizations of where the elite come together to practice pedophile practices and all these kinds of things well we have seen in uh, Washington DC in January 6 last year what what happened uh, as a result of there uh, the storming of the parliament in the US uh, uh, there. Uh, but what you, can you do? Well, importantly, and then, then I'm going back to the Hillary Clinton kind of uh, uh, running for uh, election. See, um, uh, you have uh, Democrats largely living in the East and West Coast of the US. And in the between, there are a lot of Republicans. And she called that deplorable, deplorables, a flyover country. What's what you do? Uh, you fly over it from New York to LA or vice versa, and you really don't care. And that is there. There is uh, also here in the Netherlands. We, as an, um, for instance, at the university, uh, sometimes uh, are. T- uh, uh, not respecting so much the, the concerns of uh, people, those people with a lower education or who have difficulty processing information on the internet or going online in the first uh, place. Uh, so those are the issues that we as um, uh, government, uh, for example, should take very uh, seriously and much more seriously than we are doing uh, now. Uh, so, for example, here in this country, we know that uh, at least three a million people here in the Netherlands of the 17 uh, million uh, inhabitants that we have here have the very uh, 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 have difficulty processing information and reading uh, quickly. What do we do, for example, when we uh, develop uh, future plans of how to take care of the elderly? We zoom in onto uh, using the internet and all kind of electronic equipment. Well, how silly can you be? That you can only that you can only do that when you don't take these issues into consideration. So we, as a, uh, an elite uh, coming from the government or scientists, should hook up more with ordinary citizens, uh, ordinary between brackets, and 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 try to see what are their genuine concerns and somehow need to adapt to that. So if I could ask you for one more clarification, how then in your framework of the perception of unfairness does conspiracy play in? How would you conceptualize conspiracy in your framework exactly? Uh, oh, that, that's a very uh, uh, interesting issue. Well, I think that uh, uh, 
uh, my work is, is, is zooming in onto phase before people start to adopt conspiracy thinking, I think. So it's really uh, that people think, well, this is unfair, what's going on? Oh, this is unfair. And then they are start to become vulnerable for these uh, uh, epistemological and existential identification kind of motives. They say, okay, well, there should need to be a solution. And then uh, conspiracy thinking may, may to start to kick in. Importantly, especially when governments, for example, uh, make important mistakes. Uh, for instance, our government has made uh, very important uh, mistakes in the last 10 years. For example, how they treated earthquakes in uh, the northern part of this uh, uh, country or how they treated people who needed ch childcare for their, uh, their children. Uh, and there was discrimination towards uh, those from a non-Dutch um, uh, background, uh, let's say. Uh, those are uh, terrible issues that we, that we really should uh, repair. So when people are upset about certain things, it's not because they are uh, emotionally uh, kind of individuals. No, there, there might be very good reasons, and it's our obligation to take that very uh, seriously. So how... how does your work then relate to Karen Douglas's work? Uh, I'm in all of dark <laughs> Karen Douglas. That's basically it. We, we all are. <laughs> yeah. Same counts for me. Uh, no, but but I I'm really yeah. So um, I did. Identification plays an important role in, in uh, issues of uh, fairness. So we know that by uh, the work of Alan Lind and Tom Tyler and others, uh, for example. So there, there is an interface uh, there. But what she is doing is more uh, uh, in uh, coming in a later phase of what you could say radicalization uh, processes. And when you would ask me about what would be the future of your research program, that's something I would aspire to, to include these more... Uh, let's say, abnormal instances of behavior. Eh? So what we as social psychologists tend to study is uh, relative uh, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of relatively normal people that we all can relate uh, to. And when you focus on terrorist acts, cons uh, conspiracy thinking, uh, real instances of conspiracy thinking, uh, then we are focusing much more on abnormal behavior. So, and I would like to stretch out with uh, working perhaps with colleagues, uh, colleagues like Karen Douglas uh, and people from psychiatry, for example, to uh, to assess the more to also include the more abnormal components of radicalization leading into terrorist uh, behaviors and conspiracy uh, thoughts. Yeah, one, one last point is I wanted to raise, um, and that's the point of control. You read it often in, in books and papers, also in the work of Karen Douglas, where she discusses the notion that um, conspiracy beliefs may be adopted in a situation where a person is already vulnerable, feels anxious about the situation because he or she has a lack of control. And she also conducted research in 26 countries, came out this year with lots of other people's conspiracy mentality, political orientation across 26 countries. It's called the nature human behavior, where uh, the authors also find that there is an, a relation to conspiracy beliefs and extreme political uh, opposition, so extreme uh, right and extreme left-wing parties in political opposition. And they conclude, they surmise that it may have to do with the fact that in such an extreme situation of position, you don't have control. You do not control at all what the government says or does. You're an extreme opposition party, perhaps even a minor party. So this element of control, 
sort of, for me, clouds the notion of unfairness or unjustment. Because is it really about unfairness or unjustment or just about the fact that you don't have a say in the matter? Although, epistemically speaking, it may be a just decision. Nitrogen decision is, well, it's considered a just decision by the majority of the population. It's just that the people that are afflicted now feel out of control. So how do you factor in this notion of control? Yeah, those are very important issues. And as you, uh, uh, how you perceive of control, eh, it's really related to instrumental concerns. And let me uh, say uh, quite explicitly, instrumental concerns are very important. And they are driving what is going on, uh, how people respond to certain issues. And uh, we also know that in conflicts, these uh, issues... Uh, drive realistically uh, uh, conflicting uh, kind of behaviors to between different uh, kind of groups. However, um, uh, for instance, Alan Lind has studied that uh, carefully in well-controlled uh, uh, experiments in which he was able to distinguish instrumental and non-instrumental concerns that drive people's uh, uh, fairness uh, uh, judgments and their uh, associated behaviors. And what we see time and time again, that yes, instrumental issues matter. They matter a lot, especially in realistic conflicts. Uh, Sharif et al., uh, if I may uh, highlight one of the uh, social psychology uh, champions, but non-instrumental concerns are also very important because you're really threatened, for instance, as a farmer, not only in your livelihood, but also in your identity, identity who yeah. you are and who your family is and your son who would take over the farm, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, thank you for that um, illustration to this quite for me, sometimes difficult to grasp conceptual issues. Uh, Case, to wrap up, two final questions. What will we be talking about in five years? Where will research go now? And where will you yourself push the research? Um, I think we will be uh, working much more closely uh, as scientists in uh, um, interdisciplinary uh, uh, teams uh, that uh, respond to uh, what is happening in society uh, on a rapid uh, kind of uh, time frame. Um, uh, also work, uh, working, uh, to, uh, coming from a high quality um, disciplinary, monodisciplinary background, but with a keen eye towards working uh, together. Um, and what I personally would like to uh, do is to uh, include these weird, abnormal kind of uh, issues, uh, especially uh, focusing on, on terrorist uh, behaviors. Uh, why would you uh, uh, go for uh, that? And also these um, rational, rational, illogical kind of uh, thought processes, such as we have with clear instances of our conspiracy thinking. Thank you very much. We're going to watch you closely and follow you on Twitter and on internet and wherever you are. And that wraps up another episode of the Terrorism and Political Violence podcast. Case, thank you so much for your contribution to willingness to engage with us on these questions. And please, people, do check out Case's book, Why People Radicalize, How Unfairness Judgments Are Used to Fuel Radical Beliefs, Extremist Behaviors and Terrorism, brought out by Oxford University Press. And, of course, also have a look at Karen Douglas's website and all her brilliant articles there. So thank you very much, Case, for being here and also bringing at least Karen Douglas's text with you to our studio today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast. Thank you.